Well, good morning. I am Dr. Bob Lutz. I'm blessed to be an elder here, and I'm blessed to open God's Word. And as we turn to God's Word, it is good for us to pray and express our needs to God. So would you join me? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come into this place this morning in complete need of you. We give thanks this morning that you know our hearts. And in that, you invite us to make requests to you as a good father. So God, this morning, we ask that we would be a church that acts on true faith. We ask, God, that we would demonstrate our longing for you and your glory by loving each other well. God, please make us stretch further in our life as a church to better show that we're joyously redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, and as an evidence of that act, we give you thanks this morning for those who are serving. We thank you for our volunteers this morning. God, bless those who faithfully serve in the discipleship hour and youth and children's ministry. Thank you that our children and our families can be taught from the word of God by faithful volunteers and see examples of living faith through the lives of those who serve. God, we ask that you would give us more volunteers. We thank you for those who volunteer in hospitality and security. God, bless them for their thankless work and reveal to them your work in their life as they serve. God, we also know that those who are redeemed, you have called to respond to human need we see, especially those in the household of faith. God, we thank you that we can participate and partner with Boca Helping Hands and First Care. Bless those ministries this week. Use their ministry of meeting needs and intervening in crisis to point even our neighbors across Palm Beach County to you and your son, God. May we be active in praying and supporting these. God, within our church, we thank you for those who faithfully give to our offering, to our benevolence fund. God, Use our budget, use our money, our funds to bless those in need, to bless members who even attend this church. God, prompt our hearts to act in obedience to you in the ways that show love for others because you have loved us first. Now, God, as we turn to your word, please make it clear this morning. May we hear from you and may we be pricked and made to change. And then, God, may we show action because you are at work in us through Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Do you still use money? When's the last time you've held a $20 bill in your hand? Do you remember what it looks like? It's, it's, it's fun. I used to go into my, my dad's dresser at night and he would lay out his money on the dresser and I would look at it and I would study them and I would pull out a $20 bill and you can look at it and you can see on one side you're going to see the, the, a portrait of a president, right? You're going to see President Jackson and you're going to see a lot of just intricate writing and then you're going to see 20, 20, 20, 20 on all four corners, right? But they're all different. They have different fonts, different sizes, Different, it one's even in gold. And then it's always fun as a kid to hold up money. That wasn't the case when I was a kid, but it, apparently money got better. 
And as you held it up, you can see a thread that goes down, I think now the left side of it, it used to be the right, that says 2020, 2020, 2020, all woven in to the fabric of this money. And then now there's even holograms, right? You can, you can hold up U.S. dollars, $20 and above, and you can see holograms of the same president that there's a portrait of. Please don't do it right now. But why in the world do we go through all this trouble? Why so many details? Why so intricate? Well, we know the answer to that, right? We know that there's a very real threat of counterfeiting. That the U.S. government goes through all this effort because in counterfeiting, imitation money printed illegally with the intention to defraud. And you may have been told like I was before, probably in a sermon like this, that what the Secret Service does to kind of find fake money. They're actually trained by giving stacks and stacks and stacks of real money. And they're told to feel it. They're told to look at it. They're supposed to study it. And they just do this and do this and do this. And they hold it in their hands. And then their supervisor will introduce a piece of fake currency. And they're supposed to be able to identify it by holding it in their hands and saying, what is different about this compared to what is characteristic about real money? And so the most the most powerful security guards in the world also have a task of finding counterfeit money. Why is that? Because it's dangerous for our society. In fact, Business Insider estimates that more than $220 billion is lost every year in counterfeit money. And that right now, there's somewhere between $70 million and $200 million in counterfeit cash and circulation. It does make you want to pull out your wallet right now and look, doesn't it? Because it's dangerous, it's risky. And, and in a sense this morning, when looking at James 2, that's what James is look, calling us to. He's, he's not having us look at cash, but he's asking us to look at our life, our faith, our Christianity, and determine, is it real? Is it credible? Or is it counterfeit? Is it fake? And so, in, in some senses, as we look again at James 2, I just want to give context of where we are. This really isn't an abrupt change, even from where our, our brother uh, Caleb spoke last week. This isn't, and now I'm introducing a new topic. If you flip through all five chapters of James at this point, we have a, a disciple of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, that's lovingly coming to a church that's dispersed, mainly J Jewish believers, and saying, know that your faith is real. Know that your faith isn't just something you hear, it's, it's something you do. And it's going to control the way you speak, the way you act. It's going to control who you show favoritism to. And it's going to spill out in how you live if you're holding this real and credible faith. And that's the theme of James. One scholar states that the primary theme is living out one's faith, being a doer and not just a hearer. 
James rebukes his readers for their worldliness and how it, it isn't consistent and he challenges them to seek divine wisdom in working out these problems and getting right with God. I was struck as I studied this past week with a couple things that really just permeated out to me and James. Because James at time can seem rather abrupt in reading through these epistles. There's a lot of themes in Paul we get very comfortable with. And there are things in James that we say, hmm, that's hard. And in doing that, I've often thought, well, this seems a little harsh. But as I read this week, I just want to encourage you. I see a pastor. I see someone in a church who's saying, lovingly, I want you to have it. I want you to know Christ and have the good life that comes with that. And, and that is encouraging also in the sense that I have never seen how much parallel there is between James and Proverbs in that this is wise living for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. And so in all that context, that's where we want to spend our time this morning. We want to look at giving guidance to counterfeit pilgrims. And in doing that, I just want to ask one question that, that in our time that we would ask this, is your faith credible and real? Is your relationship with God alive? Is it breathing? Is it growing? Are you gaining depth of knowledge that leads to a change in living? Does your life match what you believe? So, so as we do that this morning, I, I want us to look at three characteristics of this passage that I think we need to examine. Number one, consider the pastoral concern of James. Number two, we want to compare the cases of counterfeit and credible faith. And three, we want to check ourselves in light of that. So, so we, need, we need to know why we're concerned about this danger. We need to then see the characteristics of, of of what it means to have the real, like I would have real money. What are those characteristics versus what's fake? And then say, is what I'm holding it? And so that's what we want to do. Let's begin by considering the pastoral concern of James. Go ahead and read with me again in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James is asking a question about the a value of a faith that has no works. What good is it? What, what good is it to say, as he's, as he's coming along these Jewish Christians, he's asking them to look inward to their heart, to their faith, by outwardly considering their living. That, that what is true and real inside is going to spill out in how you live, and it's going to be seen by yourself and everyone as being alive. That's 
the real faith. That's the authentic faith. That's the saving faith. And that's why there's this pastoral concern. Because as I said earlier, James wants the believers that he's writing to to have it. He wants them to have a living, real, saving, sanctifying, eternally secured faith. And he, and he desperately wants them to, to experience that now in, in knowing that they'll have eternity with Christ. So it, it's real that he would want them to have a real faith and, and, and know the characteristics of real faith. And, and, and going back to my analogy, James is giving us key characteristics to, of how to evaluate faith. So there, there are little things like the little 20s. There are things that you'll have if you have real faith that you'll be able to hold up to the light of day. And, and number two, and this is where I think the pastoral concern is really clearly seen here, is that he is inferring that it's possible for professing Christians to get it wrong. It's possible to be sitting in a church and be deceived that you have faith in Jesus Christ and it be dead, it be useless, it be fake, it be counterfeit. And so I think you might see this pastoral angst and concern and desire. So, so again, he's asking us to pull out our wallets of our hearts to hold up what we are claiming and to put it in the light of day that we would see it, that we would know if it's true. Alistair Begg gives good context of this. He actually says that uh, James would clearly know the teaching of Jesus Christ, and it would be just, just permeating on his heart and, and, and at the ready of what he would want for his disciples, for these, these church members. And it matches, as you look at, if you would just consider with me, Matthew 7. This is the teaching of Jesus. Immediately following a passage where he's talked about that a tree will be known by its fruit, and that a tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down, this is the next teaching. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus clearly warns that there are some who will believe they're followers of Christ, that they know Christ, that they've actually done things in the name of Christ, yet they do not know him and they'll be cast out. James doesn't want that for anyone who's reading. He knows that to be true. And he's pleading with these, belief, these professors that they would have true belief. Begg says in application, do you see why this is so dangerous to be in a place where the Bible's taught? Why it's so dangerous to be in a church where a pastor 
It's making an honest endeavor to teach the gospel, to explain that who Jesus is and what he has done is the basis of forgiveness and the hope of heaven, and to press upon men and women the need to trust in Jesus. Do you realize that there is less significance in the opposition of a pagan than there is in the lostness of a false professor who has just a little something that resembles the real thing? We have a vast number of individuals in inflated church memberships claiming that because at some point they raised a hand or walked an aisle or trusted Christ, that they are genuinely in Christ. They have no interest in the Bible, no zeal for their unsaved friends and neighbors, no call to a holy life. In fact, they are indiscriminately the same as their non-Christian friends. What does the Bible say about that? Well, what about us this morning? I'm so glad you're here. I I am grateful to be here. I have enjoyed worshiping. This is where we need to be. But it is not a place to be complacent. It is not a safe place to just assent and take in knowledge. This is a place to deal with God. Are you encouraged by seeing how God has worked in your life and changed you and shown himself to be alive in your life and how you've learned to love and serve others? Or are you honest this morning that maybe what you're trusting is a decision you've made in the past? Maybe what you're trusting is an understanding of theology or an understanding of what this book says. But not a life that's changed. Well, friend, if that is pricking your heart this morning, then make use of the time we have. Deal with God. This is a dangerous place. Let's, at the same time, let's be encouraged. We do have the words of life. So as we continue to work through this passage together, let's see the promises that we have that James is revealing to us. And we do that in number two. We want to we not only consider the pastoral concern, we also want to compare the cases of counterfeit versus credible faith. Have you ever noticed sometimes, I, I feel this a lot as I get older, um, Someone wants to explain something to you. I work at a university. There are smart people there. And you can get in discussions on topics that you think and you scratch your head. I don't know if I know what we're talking about here. And then they'll say, let me tell you a story that will help it make sense. Let me tell you an illustration that might help me make sense. That is the sign of a good teacher, isn't it? Take something complex and hard and then make it make sense. Well, that's in essence what James is trying to do. He's going to give two illustrations of counterfeit faith that are there for us to say, this is, in, this is the fake stuff, the fraud. And then he's going to give two illustrations or actual stories from God's word of people who demonstrated real and authentic faith. Well, let's look again in verse 18 through 20. 
as we first consider the counterfeit faith. So the fake stuff. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? This first illustration took me some time to reread and reread and reread to make sure I was understanding what was what is this dialogue? Who's talking? Is James talking? Is someone talking? Are, are we what are we comparing faith to? Is it faith versus works? That's that's not what's happening and what would save you here. What what is happening is that I don't I don't know exactly who is speaking, but the authentic Christian is telling his friend that in the demonstration in the, the revealing of their faith, that the other person only has faith to prove their faith. The, I have it, I have it. And, and the genuine Christian is saying, I, I, I actually have evidence of a changed life. And so if, if we're to prove our faith, to demonstrate our faith, the, the value and, and the ability to show how God's changed my life, is the true stuff because anyone can just say, I have it, I have it, I have it. Uh, to help make sense of the story, I'll give another story. On our honeymoon, uh, we went to the exotic place leaving Ohio of uh, Delray Beach, Florida. This is before we lived here, so it was very exotic for us. And um, my wife and I decided to go out to dinner one night on Atlantic Avenue and we are walking down the street and someone just confronts us and he's got a Kiwi accent and his name's Kiwi Steve and he just grabs my hand, kind of corners us and he says, I am the greatest race car driver in the world. Okay. And then he hands me a business card that he had printed that says he is the greatest race car driver in the world. And on that business card is a link to a website that he created that says he is the greatest race car driver in the world. I had never heard of him. And quickly with my new bride, I thought maybe this is not somewhere I want to be right now. And I graciously ended the conversation and we found our way to a restaurant. And then we looked up his website and thought this man might need help. And I can tell you that he was completely sincere on that street that night. That what he was saying was, I, I, I'm it. I'm the, I'm the greatest race car driver in the world. However, had Mario Andretti been walking down that street that night, he would not have had to give me a business card. I would have recognized who he was, and I would have recognized him from what he accomplished at the Indianapolis 500, at Daytona, at Le Mans, because he demonstrated what was real. Now, he, he may not be the greatest now, but at one point, he demonstrated, he lived it, he showed it. And, and, and that is like Kiwi Steve, I hope he's doing well somewhere this morning, is like the person that proves their faith with just the assertion. I have it. I have it. 
And maybe you can quote scripture. Maybe you can dissect theological truths in scripture. Maybe you can spell tulip frontward and backwards and understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation. It will not save you. If there is no demonstration of how God is working in your life, then you need to ask about the value of your faith. He gives another story. So so we see that hypothetical one. The second one is he talks about the faith of demons. The faith of demons. It's a strange thought. But what characterizes their faith as we see here? Like those who claim to have saving faith, even the demons know there is one God. If you think about this in light of biblical times, most people were walking around thinking there are many gods, but even the demons could say there is only one true God. In fact, as we've studied in Luke together, we know that they have a pretty good theological understanding too, don't they? Remember in our study in Luke that the demons trembled before Jesus and even could proclaim him as the very son of God. They knew that Jesus of Nazareth standing before them was the son of God the Messiah. But do they have saving faith? What works can we find in a demon? And, and, and to kind of think of works in this way that I think Calvin and the Puritans rightly thought of it and even Piper more recently, it is that your faith will produce love. That your faith will produce acts of love if you have genuine faith. And so if I ask the question of that of a demon, would you say a demon has acts of love to God and others? No. No, the exact opposite. Because we know they hate God. Even though they know him to be the only true God, their faith in God is dead to save them because it's an assertion of who he is, but no intimate knowledge and life change and communion with God. And so their knowledge of God is their own judgment. It is, it is demonstration of their own judgment. And that's what James is saying of a professing Christian who has no works, who has no acts of how God is working and changing and pricking and, and pulling them and drawing them into holiness. Who has no love. Their faith is dead to save them. And their knowledge of God shows their own judgment. So what does your work, what does your faith, what do your acts say about you this morning? What would they say you love? Maybe you can wade into some deep theological waters. Maybe you can consider the characteristics of God and you can explain creation and you can accurately and biblically discuss salvation and eternity and judgment. However, if you have no demonstration of a changed heart that reflects a love for God in you, how, how you love others and even the least of these, that seeks to engage and meet human needs, especially within this body, then you need to examine if your faith is real and alive this morning. 
I pray like I think many of you are because I see the evidences of your faith. I see how God's at work in this place. I, 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 I'm blessed to see baptisms a few weeks ago. I'm blessed to see another baptism which is, is, is a true faith and a true repentance with true evidence of faith and true evidence of repentance. I get to do membership interviews with some of you and hear that God is worked in your life and not just worked in your life at one moment in time and, but continues to show himself faithful. Be encouraged by what God is doing and I hope that you are encouraged. But be challenged this morning if you are in Christ that as you grow in the realization of the knowledge of God, it cannot be cognitive only. It cannot be a comfortability with theology. It must be a dealing with the living God that changes the way you live. If the depth of your love doesn't match the depth of your knowledge of God, pray that God would penetrate your heart anew and that you would be made to act out on your faith that you profess. So, as we've looked at the counterfeit and held it up to the light. Now let's look at the credible faith. And we see two stories here. First, if we look in verse 22, we see the, the, the life of Abraham. And, he, and James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we consider this morning uh, Abraham and Rahab. What is James saying? Does this sound odd to you? Does this sound slightly heretical? This text could be confusing at first glance. This is some deep theological water in itself. Is James suggesting that we're justified by works? He, he literally uses the word what does it mean? Is he contradicting Paul who says we're justified by faith alone? In fact, we look at Romans 3, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For as there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter four to say, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here we have Paul saying, you are justified by faith alone. And we have James, at least on the surface, saying you're justified by your faith and your works together. So what is it? Well, to get, to get this clarified in five minutes, I hope, we want to look at two things. We want to look at the word justify. 
And then we want to look at the context of what James is saying in this, book, in this epistle. So first, justify. John Piper rightly points out that words can have different meaning. He uses the word rock. The word rock could mean a stone that you can throw. The word rock can mean to glide back and forth on an old person's chair. Or the word rock could mean if I attempted to go play the guitar right now. And it could mean all three of those. And, and so in scripture, that's true of the word justify. The word justify, most of the time that we've read it, is drawing out what the Apostle Paul is pointing to. That in that, what we're talking about is what makes us have right standing before God. That's the concern in Romans. He's helping that church understand on what grounds do you have any right standing before God? Is it yourself? Is it what you do? Is it the works that you have in your own living? No. No. The only way you have right standing before God is because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's given to us through grace alone and faith alone that we would not boast. And that the faith of Abraham was actually credited to him. And when was it credited to him? Before he had done anything. And so in that we see here that there is a declaration that the word justify can mean and if, if you think just for a minute by what I mean by this declaration let's go back to the analogy I had of money for a second okay what gives money value it's, it's, it's not backed by just hold, holding something that says I owe you or me saying I'll trade you some milk for some eggs that's in essence what our works are. We're going to God and saying, I'll give you what I have and you give me what you have. And it's, it's something I'm bringing to the table in itself. No, when you think about money, it's only as good as the currency that's accepted. It's backed by the U.S. government as being the means by which you can have value and they assign the value to it and they print it legally and they have it and it is all given to banks and then distributed all apart from the individual. And, and there's some truth in that that the declaration of the value of it will always be outside of you and your faith. It will always and only and eternally be in what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So that's what Paul's saying. He's talking about the declaration that you are declared forgiven. You're declared righteous. But in James, that's not, if you look at the context, that's not the way he's using it. If you look at all five chapters of James, what does he want? He wants them to have real faith. Nowhere does he say, bring your works to the table. He's saying that you would have real faith and that that faith would then have legs. And He's not disagreeing with Paul. In fact, it's almost like you have one good pastor and shepherd saying, you need to know what you believe. And you need to know it's true. That Christ is who he says he is. And your only hope of salvation is found in him on the cross and defeating sin and rising again. And that that's your only hope. And that's what this loving pastor is saying, that you would get it right. 
And then there's another pastor who's coming along say, and that knowing it, that it would change your life, that it would take root, that the Holy Spirit would work in and out of your life and how you love your family and how you live and serve others and how you even feed and provide for those who are hurting or even naked in your midst. And, and, and they're both right, they're, they're complementing each other. So as Paul's talking about a declaration, James is talking about the demonstration. That you would demonstrate that you have the real faith. Piper says this, he says, so when Paul renounces justification by works, he renounces the view that anything we do along with faith is credited to us as righteousness. Only faith obtains the verdict, not guilty, when we become Christian. Works of any kind are not acceptable in the moment of initial justification. But when James affirms justification by works, he means that works are necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian to confirm and prove the reality of the faith which justifies. So if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, please understand that the only hope of salvation is outside yourself and in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And that the hope that you have this morning, whether you've never known that, never claimed that, or whether you are the person saying, I have Jesus, I have Jesus, I have Jesus, I know because when I was 16, I. Be reminded this morning that the only hope and the real hope that you can afford this morning is in what Jesus Christ has done. That we are sinners and we stand before a righteous judge. But in loving us, God acted and sent his son to die for us. And his sacrifice was met and good and exhausted the wrath of God for those who believe. That's real this morning. And that is the declaration of, of grace. But now on us is the call for those who are forgiven to demonstrate that out in how we live. And so, in seeing that, I hope you see this compliment. Well, in the time we have, let's actually consider the, the, the two stories here. Consider Abraham. Who was Abraham? Well, he would have been the most famous person for many in the Jewish faith. For many of these dispersed church members, he would have been known as the patriarch. He was the one who was promised many nations. He was promised that his descendants would be as great as the stars in the sky. And we know from the teaching of Christ in John that Abraham said that he could see the day of Christ and he was glad that his hope, his faith was in the promise of the hope of the Messiah and Abraham believed God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness that we've even read in this text. He's declared righteous. He was seen as clean before God right there in Genesis 15. But he hadn't demonstrated that. He hadn't shown that. He hadn't acted out on that. So as you turn over to Genesis 22, which we read this morning, you see that God gives him a test to reveal his faith. He actually asked him to kill his own son. The very son who was the hope of the promise that God had given him. And in essence, he's saying, do you trust me? Do you love me even more than your son? Even more than, than your own 
thought in how I will accomplish what I will. And what does Abraham do? He, he obeys him. So he's declared righteousness, righteous, and he demonstrates the righteousness he was given in faith by obeying and being willing to actually sacrifice Isaac. God knew the entire time of the faith of Abraham. He knew it was authentic. But in obeying God, Abraham demonstrated to himself and the world that he had saving faith. Also Rahab. So we go from the most known, logical, best OT example, Old Testament example, to Rahab, who is not Hebrew, who is actually a Canaanite prostitute. And what, was, what did she do? What do we know? Well, beyond being a prostitute, we know that she knew that the God of Israel was the living God of the heavens and the earth. And how did she know that? She had heard what God had done in leading the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And she believed that God is who he says he is. So much so that then, in that belief that was credited to her as righteous, she acted. And she acted in obedience by harboring spies that then destroyed her very own city, Jericho. And so God blessed her to the point that in, in having this belief and being declared and then demonstrating that she's actually, as we'll probably see in a few weeks when we when we get into Christmas season, she is mentioned in the genealogies of Christ. That in her line, through her children's children's children, the hope that she had was, was met in the Messiah. So I love, in essence, to bring this together. I love how the reformers have said this. That we are saved by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone. We're saved by faith alone, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in knowing the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working within you, it will never be alone. There will be works that show that you have been changed, that you've been redeemed, that Christ is your Lord. And so that brings us to our final point, our final place of application this morning. We need to check ourselves for credible faith. So as I said earlier, um, we first need to recognize the object of our hope and, and, and whether or not we have credible faith that is found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then we also need to check as we look, hold up that $20 bill and saying, is what I have what I think I'm holding in my life, does it match? And to do that, just by way of encouragement, I was struck by just a few, few pieces of this passage that I hope could encourage you. So number one, as we hold up our life in the light to see that we're both declared righteous and demonstrating that righteousness, be encouraged by what is said of even Abraham. Remember that Scripture is fulfilled in our obedience to God. It actually says that Scripture is fulfilled 
in what it says in Genesis 15 that he was declared righteous by what he did in Genesis 22. And that there are many things that are described by Jesus Christ and in the New Testament that are true of real believers. That we would have the fruit of the Spirit. That we would be known by our acts. That we would be known by the way we love each other. And that as we do that, we have the opportunity to actually fulfill Scripture and enjoy blessing. As children of God, you and I can fulfill Scripture of what Christ said to his followers, what will be when we obey and act in our faith. We can demonstrate to ourselves, each other, and the world that what God says is true and real and alive when we obey. So what specific obedience this morning or call to holiness do you need to bring to light? What action is required of your faith this morning? Are you being asked to be humble and faithful under a difficult boss? Are you having to have kind and gracious and controlled speech and action at a school where you may be popular or ostracized? Or, or in that same space, are, are you being asked to pursue someone who is unpopular and ostracized in that school? Perhaps you're being asked to be challenged by how you use your money and as a reflection of your love this morning. Have you acted with your money in, in giving to the work of God and the needs of others that show that you love the living God and the people of God more than you love yourself? There may be something in your life that you have to sacrifice this morning. Like Abraham, who was obedient to sacrifice his only son, and Rahab, who was obedient to be drawn to God at the risk of her life and against her own people, what are you being asked to give up? What bold thing for God are you afraid to do because of your comfort this morning? Ask God to reveal it. Maybe you need to give up your reputation. Maybe you need to give up your status. Maybe you need to give up your ease. But be encouraged as we act in obedience and fulfilling who we are in Christ, we get blessing. Manton says this, obedience to God does two things. It renews the promise of Christ to the believer. And it gives him a testimony and declaration of the sincerity of his belief. So know that their scripture is fulfilled as we obey. And know that there is blessing as we obey. And that obedience in holiness, that obedience in living, that obedience in works is there for us, for our good. And finally, just as a special note to our members and application within our body, I'm struck at the very, even the beginning of this passage. The, the concern that, that James shows in someone who doesn't have the authentic real faith that they can hold up is found by seeing a brother and sister in their midst who is in need and just saying, God bless you, and doing nothing. We're called as a local body that what is preached from this pulpit week in, week out should be the most important part of our gathering. It should be the truth we need and then it should take life and shape and action 
in how we live and care for each other. So much so that we're going to see that in a baptism and rejoice. And then we're called to that in our church covenant, if you're a member of First Boynton. That, that it actually says, having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So having known that you're declared righteous, we're going to be careful then how we live together. We're going to demonstrate that in how we live together. That it says that we're going to do a bunch of stuff. That we're going to work and pray. That we're going to walk together in brotherly love. That we're going to endeavor to bring up people under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That we're going to bear each other's burdens. That we're going to live carefully in a fallen world. And we're going to live a holy life. Separate. That we're going to contribute cheerfully to the expenses of the church. The relief of the poor, even in this midst. And the spread of the gospel. All on the credit of what Christ has done, but demonstrated in a way that gives God glory and us blessing in how we live. In essence, we'll show that we have genuine faith by how we live and how we hold each other up to what we have said to be true of God from this place. Because of the God who was willing to give up his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Let us live out our faith in him and how we love each other. How we work and how we serve those in need, work for and serve those in need, especially in this body. And how we pursue holiness and grace with each other. Let's pray that God will make that true of us this morning. Join me in prayer. Generally, Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. They are the very words of life. Salvation belongs to our God. It is found in no other name than of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. May each person, may each of us in this body know and believe that what Christ did on the cross as a perfect sacrifice is real and that we are declared righteous because of his offering. And God, may we as a church demonstrate it in how we live, how we love. God, work in our church that we would not be hearers only, but doers as well. We ask this for your glory. Amen.